Well, over the last few weeks, we've looked at the nature of the gospel. We've looked at the nature of faith, meaning what these things actually consist of. What is the nature of these things? And what is the nature of us? What is the nature of God's people? What sorts of things are we characterized by? What about the nature of God bringing people to himself? How does that work? Specifically, what is the nature of God's original people? The nation of Israel. And how does that correspond to today? And Paul is going to answer all of those questions and more today. So if you're not there, head over to Romans 11. We've been making our way through Romans. Last week we started chapter 11 and we looked at the concept of the remnant. God always has saved his people from the global corruption and sinfulness all around them. He's called his people to himself. He's always saved a remnant from the time of Noah and his family to the priests who refused to bow the knee to Baal, to Abraham, to Joseph, the tribe of Judah, and to Israel today, and every nation under uh, God's sun in the sky. He still is saving a remnant, and it's all by his grace. This week, Paul focuses even more intensely on the people of Israel and God's plan for them and what that means for the whole world, and particularly those who are part of the remnant of Israel itself. Let's get into it. Look at verse 11, again, of chapter 11. Paul asking one of his rhetorical questions again. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul once again asks his famous rhetorical question, anticipating an objection. He says to himself, so I ask myself, self, did they stumble in order that they would fall? Famous answer, now for the 10th time, if you're scoring along at home, by no means, absolutely not, God forbid. And so who are the they that he's talking about in this question? Context tells us it has to be Israel. Last week we saw that he asked, has God rejected his people? And that's the they, Israel. He's continuing with that thought. And what did they stumble over? This is also clear in context. We are reminded of chapter 9, verse 32. They did not pursue it with faith, but as it were based on works, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone, which we know is a way of referring to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Israel stumbled over Jesus, the Messiah, meaning they refused to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, and therefore they stumbled. Look back at verse 11, and what does he mean? They stumbled, and, and did they fall? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? Our word here has the idea of a complete and total fall from grace, a complete ruin. And so the question Paul is really asking is, did Israel reject Jesus as the Messiah so that they might be completely ruined? And the answer again is, of course not. Similar to 11, chapter, one, chapter 11, verse 1, rather, did God make a complete end to Israel? He's still kind of asking that question, but in a different way, but he's, he's tying it to their actions. Last week, we saw that. Did God reject Israel? No, of course not. He saved a remnant. This week, Paul gets deeper into the how and the why and the nature of things. He says, did they stumble over Jesus so that God would make a complete end to them? And he says, no, 
Absolutely not. That's not the way that it works. There was actually a plan. Paul tells them that the plan was because of their trespass, right, their sin of rejecting Jesus, salvation has now come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. When we think of jealous, right, we don't think of, you know, high school stuff like, hey, that girl's talking to my crush. Like, we're not talking about that. We're talking about God's holy jealousy here. And we see the plan of God, meaning that God ordained and used the sin of Israel to turn his saving grace to the Gentiles, and that that in turn would make Israel jealous. Jealous of what? Jealous of seeing Gentiles, their enemies, right? There was two buckets that the Jewish mind looked at the whole world in at that time. There were Jews, the people of God, and then everybody else was the Gentiles, They were not as good as the people of God. And so when they see these Gentiles then coming to salvation, delighting in their Savior who came from the line of Israel, that's designed by God to make them jealous, to make them want to investigate this. This is not the first time Paul's talked about this. Romans 10, 19, he says, quoting, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, and with a foolish nation I will make you angry. God is letting all this happen, so he's stirring Israel's heart so that they might consider this again. And Jesus came to Israel from the Jews. The Jews rejected him, and God allowed that to happen to turn his attention attention to saving the Gentiles and thus make Israel jealous of the salvation that now the Gentiles have and to motivate them to seek Christ themselves. If Israel's sin, he goes on, meant riches, riches of salvation for the rest of the world, and he clarifies specifically to the Gentiles, then how much more would their full inclusion mean? And now he adds one more step to this plan of salvation and the nature of God's people. Jesus is sent to earth as the Messiah. The Jews, by and large, reject him. So God turns his attention to the Gentiles with the offer of salvation. The Gentiles accept, for the most part, some of them, the remnant. That makes Israel jealous. And God is not done with them. They turn, some of them turn, the remnant will turn. There will be a time when they are included again. They turn to Christ in faith. And what a testimony that would be to the whole world. Even more so than their rejection of Jesus the Messiah. How much more so a testimony to the whole world if the people who once rejected Jesus now finally consider Jesus and then submit to him. What a a testimony that would be. Paul keeps going. Look at verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? This is basically, again, a restatement of what we just said, what he's just put forth, specifically with Jews and Gentiles. And Paul acknowledges that he's speaking directly to the Gentiles. Why? What gives him the right to speak to the Gentiles? Well, a few weeks ago, in both Wednesday morning and Wednesday night men's Bible study, shameless plug, 7 a.m. at the diner, 7.30 p.m. up there. It's a good time. Guys, you need to be there. God said directly in Acts, or, or he said it directly in Acts through the writers, 
The Lord says to to Paul after his conversion, he's explaining this all to Ananias, who is supposed to go tell Paul, right? Ananias, not excited about this in the least because uh, isn't that the guy that kills us for a living? God, you want me to go talk to this guy? And God says, no, he's on our side now. He said, oh, okay, cool, sure, I'll get right over there. God says this, the Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul's acting out his commission here. That's why he's a a prophet, a minister to the Gentiles. And he says he magnifies or glorifies his ministry, not to make himself look good, not to establish Apostle Paul International Ministries.com. But why? The bigger he makes his ministry, the farther he, he proclaims the gospel, the more Gentiles that come in. What's that supposed to do? He says, so as to make my fellow Jews jealous. More attention, more focus on Jesus, more Jews will hopefully see that, be made jealous, and hopefully, he says, save some, save the remnant. In verse 15, Paul summarizes the plan. If their rejection of Jesus or God's rejection of them as the only people of God, not a complete rejection, if God's rejection of them because they rejected Jesus, if that means reconciliation to the whole world, what will their acceptance mean? And understand this, we have to keep the full plan of God here that Paul's laying out. Once again, Jesus comes. Israel, by and large, rejects him as the Messiah. Salvation is then thrown open to the Gentiles, which makes the Jews jealous. Some of them turn to Christ in faith and are reconciled and accepted. And what does that mean? Well, Paul tells us exactly what that means in verse 15. He says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? This is spiritual life. This is resurrection. This is what happens when we go from spiritually dead people to spiritually alive people. This is what happens when we go from the column of being guilty and separated from God to innocent and adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ. I do think there is a nod, which we'll get there next week. There's a nod to end times. There's a nod to what will happen at the end when Jesus does come. I do believe, stealing from next week, there's going to be a, 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 a mass, maybe influx of Jews that will come to the understanding, wow, I get it now. We pray for that. We hope that. And so at the end times when we see, when we see believers then, in the judgment, when we see believers then glorified, sanctified, set apart to be with Christ forever. Some commentators do think that that's an eschatological or an end times aspect. The resurrection of the dead at the return of Christ, where we're now one big happy family. Jews, Gentiles, all united through faith in Jesus Christ. Either way, we need to take a step back and just look at the sovereignty of God in his plan of salvation, don't we? It's salvation for both Jews, Gentiles, the whole world. Once again, he does not make a complete end of the nation of Israel, although he probably should. And let's be fair, he probably should have made a complete end to the Gentiles as well, but he didn't. He has grace. He has mercy. So here's the first point. God's people should rejoice in God's global plan of salvation. God's people should rejoice in God's global plan of salvation. The gospel has always been global. 
from the very first time that God called Abraham and said, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Part of the error of the Jews of Israel was making it all about themselves. They made it all about their worship. They made it all about their temple. They made it all about their people, forgetting that they were supposed to be the light to the nations through Christ, even more so today with Orthodox and Hasidic and Rabbinic Judaism. Even worse, Israel turned from God into apostasy. They rejected him, and they worshiped the gods of the nations that were all around them, even culminating in in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where Pilate says, what shall I do with your king? And they respond, we have no king but Caesar. Like, if there was ever a moment where you saw the true apostasy of the Jews, maybe that's it. They have no king? Yahweh? Never heard of him? God? You just want Jesus on that cross so bad that you will deny your heavenly father. That's where we are now? Okay. You see that even in that, God did not make a complete end to them. He still saved a remnant. So the application question is this. Do we rejoice in God saving his remnant from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation? Do we see the events in the Middle East today in Israel as part of God's plan to bring people to himself? Not necessarily a plan for the end of the world where Jesus is going to come Tuesday. Okay? I need to just calm down on that. He's bringing the remnant to himself. God's still working his plan. This is all part of the stirring of hearts to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's a, a, another way that God, or another way rather to look at the plan of salvation. Do we rejoice when we see others right here in our own context coming to faith? How about this? Do we rejoice when we see others maturing and growing and serving in the faith? Or do we get humanistically, sinfully jealous? How come they get to do that? How come they're all fired up about the Lord Jesus Christ? How come they can't stop talking in care group? How come whatever? How come they're praying all the time? How come all of these things? Many more things. How come, how come? Do we look at this in that way? We can go many, many ways with uh, spiritual things and spiritual growth within the body of Christ. We can let it terminate on itself, and we can let it grow bitterness in our hearts towards the other person, or we can let it, as God designed to work with Israel, motivate us to life and godliness. When we see others coming to faith or growing in the faith, it should spur us on to growth ourselves. When we see others serving with their gifts, does it encourage us to serve with ours? We're so quick to drift into an us and them scenario. And that's not the way things are supposed to be within the body of Christ. We're supposed to encourage one another to love and good works. Is this the way it's working? When we see people coming to faith. Church, we should be rejoicing when people come to faith. We got a member class that is booked today. I rejoice in that. If you're coming to the member class, another shameless plug, please put your name down or there'll be no pizza for you later on. Okay? <laughs> We have to realize the uncomfortable truth or an uncomfortable truth. The church of God is bigger than just ourselves. It is not about us. It turns out it is about lumps of dough 
and an olive tree and their branches. Look at verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand firm in the faith or stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches, or if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So Paul uses two metaphors here. First, a lump of dough, and second, a tree, specifically an olive tree. First, he makes reference to the part of the Old Testament law where you would offer sacrifice to God. You would take a piece of your lump of dough, and you would offer that to God as a sacrifice. And therefore, what does that mean for the rest of the lump of the dough? Well, that's still set apart. It's still holy. If one part is set apart, then the whole thing is. It's, it's that concept, if, if the root is holy, then everything is holy. If a little bit of it's holy, if the dough is holy, so is the whole loaf of bread. It reflects the general principle that one would continue to honor God with not only the first part of something, but the rest of something. Keep honoring God with all of it. Paul applies this to Israel in the sense that they started as the people of God, Therefore, God will continue to show his faithfulness to Israel in some way. Namely, by not completely abandoning them and still coming to save them and his, as his remnant from even Israel who rejected them, him. He continues to run with the metaphor of, this, of a tree in verse 17 to 21. The tree represents the people of God. It's important that we realize that. The tree is not just Israel, okay? The tree is the people of God. The original people of God were Israel. But don't limit yourself in your thoughts to thinking that the tree is just Israel. The tree is the people of God who were, of course, originally Israel. Some of the people of God rejected Jesus, the Messiah, and they were broken off. I was thinking about making a diagram of this, and I gave it like 90 seconds of my best time, and I was like, I can't do this. I looked around. I, there were some other ones. There were some really bad ones, and I just kind of gave up. So use your imagination here. Some of the limbs were broken off the tree because of their unbelief. They rejected Jesus. And now those limbs are on the ground, apart from the people of God. But God, in his global plan of salvation, had other family members from outside of Israel, branches that were not naturally part of that tree. Later on, he uses the, the language of a cultivated olive tree versus the wild olive shoot, right? So these are the wild olive shoots, that were his elect, that were his remnants. And Paul says that he would take those branches from a wild olive shoot, not part of the natural tree. He would take those branches and he would graft them in to the tree that represents the people of God. And then they would grow to become part of that actual tree. This is actually a thing. You can actually take, from what I understand, a branch from another, another tree. Hopefully it's the same tree. I'm not exactly sure how that works. You can definitely go down a rabbit hole there as well. And you can graft it in. I found a picture of it. You can see it. They, they, they cut the branch a little bit in the tree that exists, right? And they cut the new branch a little bit so that it has, has kind of bare branch skin or whatever that's called. And you put it in there. 
And then you tape it up and you let it sit. And after a while, evolution does its thing. No, after a while, <laughs> God's creation does its thing. And somehow, this branch then becomes part of the tree. Like it was there to begin with. Gentiles, that's us. We're that little, we're that little branch there. We're, we're, we're from another tree. We're from the wild olive shoot. The wild, wild olive branch. We, we were brought into the family of God and we were grafted in and now we are all one tree, one people of God. But Paul warns us Gentiles, he says, don't be arrogant about this. Don't be boasting about this. Don't be saying, hey, uh, you Jewish brothers, right? Maybe talking to the branches that have now been snapped off and are on the ground. Huh? Neener, neener, neener. I'm part of the tree now. You're not. Soon you're going to be in the fire, Right? He says, don't do that. He says, don't boast about that to those that were broken off. He admits in verse 20, yeah, it is true. They were broken off because they did not believe. And you are here in the tree because you did believe. But that's still not a reason to boast. Why? Did you graft yourself into that tree? Did you grow little tree limb legs and walk yourself over to this tree and Get out a knife and graft yourself. No, of course you didn't. God did it. So what are you boasting in anyway? Nothing. You shouldn't be boasting. It's the work of God, not you. Instead of boasting, your attitude should be one of holy fear. <clears throat> Why? Because God snapped off the branches from his original tree because they refused to believe. You think he won't do the same to you? He says you should instead fear. This is not about losing your salvation. It's about the principle, you aren't here because of your own efforts. God is the one who grafted you in. God's the one who snapped them off. You should be humble. You should be thankful. You should be grateful. You should have reverent fear. May I remain faithful then as part of this tree that I didn't belong to in the first place. God is the grafter. And Gentile, you didn't graft yourself in. God did it. So here's the point. God's people become God's people through God's work. God's people become God's people through God's work. I hope you know this, church, mostly Gentiles, right? We would not be here without Israel. We would not be here without the Old Testament. The Old Testament, I know it's scary and kind of weird, but we would not be here were it not for the Old Testament. We were not part of the original people of God. The new covenant is built on the foundation of the old covenant. Israel, the true people of God, they were referred to many times as an olive tree all over the Old Testament. And still, if you go to Israel today, you find lots of olive trees all over the place. But now there is one tree, one where the Jews and the Gentiles, the people of God, are all one people grafted in together by God himself. And in this day and age where there are false prophets who are going ballistic with everything that's happening in Israel, there's no better passage to be in right now than Romans 11, which is why I'm a little giddy, so you have to excuse me. We are not living in warp speed. We are not seeing the end times happening before our eyes. Sorry, I'm going to stick to that. Israel being invaded is nothing new. What we are seeing is an ongoing, redemptive, global plan of God. Is this historically significant? You better believe it. We're going to be talking about this for decades, what's going on right now, and how, who knows how it's going to unfold. 
But church, let's remember, remember, right, a lot of the false prophecies we see, they are whacked. We have to be careful. A few things to keep in mind about Israel. First and foremost, we've got to remember that modern Israel is not biblical Israel. The promises of the Old Testament no longer apply to modern-day Israel just because they have a star of David on their flag. Modern-day Israel was judged in 70 AD when the temple was demolished and the Old Covenant was officially gone. When we speak of Christ's first coming, we usually always default to Jesus Christ came to save. Jesus Christ came to save. Jesus Christ came to save. Yes, and amen, he did. But he also came to judge the nation of Israel, the Pharisees and the leaders, and also came to end the Old Covenant and begin the New Covenant. And that's hugely significant when you're living in a time like this. Because that old covenant nation of Israel is, and therefore now superseded by the tree, the new tree, the people of God. And so when we talk about prophecies of Israel, there aren't any left because they've been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The new covenant supersedes the old covenant. It's done. And the promises to Israel have been fulfilled in him. So first, we need to remember that modern Israel is not biblical Israel. Jesus himself said right after he pronounced woe and judgment on them that their house is gone. Their house is desolate, he uses the word. Matthew 23, in verse 37, he says this. He laments after he just woed everybody into oblivion. He laments, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Old covenant Israel had been superseded by the new tree. Biblical Israel is gone. The promises have been fulfilled by the gospel of Jesus he says it directly, and that relates to the destruction of the temple. Look right in Matthew, where we're still in Matthew 23. Look just at Matthew 24, the first two verses. Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them and said, you see all these things? Don't you see them? He says, truly, I say to you, there will not be one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. The temple's gone. Is there any other major historical event that we need to realize then what Jesus said in the old covenant then being superseded by the new covenant. You still go there today. It's a pile of rocks. It's beautiful. You should go there. But there are still giant mountains of stones. I'll give you one prophetic example so you have some additional biblical support because this is all over the place right now. We're, go we're going back. We're going to Amos. If I can find Amos. Amos chapter 9. When people talk about, oh, the nation of Israel is going to be established again, the temple is going to be built again, sacrifices are going to happen again. No, 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 nope. Look at uh, Amos 9, 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, where the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they will re rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And again, 
They will never be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so we take a promise like that, and some theologians and people would say, well, this means that Israel is going to be replanted in the land, and it's going to be great, and the end's going to come, and all of this. And guess what? In Acts 15, we see that that was actually already fulfilled. Acts 15, verse 16. He quotes Amos 9 directly. This is, this is the Jerusalem council. This is when the question of what do we do with the Gentiles in the church? What do we do with the Jews and the Gentiles? And they decide, yes, the Gentiles no longer have to obey the law. They no longer have to be circumcised. They no longer have to obey all those things. Why would you put that on them? They can't. We didn't bear it. Why, why, why them? Verse 15 of Acts 15, and with the words of the prophets, agree, just as is written, after this I will return. And he quotes Amos 9. And so where is Amos 9 fulfilled? It's fulfilled when the Gentiles come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what happens. When the church begins to grow, when the tree begins to grow as Jews and Gentiles all together. And so we've got to remember, church, that the promises to Israel have been fulfilled, even the ones about rebuilding and restoring, and they've been fulfilled. How? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. It all comes down to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does this mean that the church has replaced Israel? No, it doesn't mean that. Paul doesn't say that God got out his trusty Husqvarna chainsaw, lopped the tree down, then came and stumped it out and planted a new tree next to where the old tree would be. He doesn't say that. He says it's still the people of God. And guess who's been grafted in? The Gentiles have been grafted in. It's not replacement theology. This is not saying that the people of God are, are necessarily a new people of God and Israel's gone. No, Israel was the original people of God. Now we're grafted into them. Paul says that there's the same tree and that the unbelieving branches were broken off and the believing Gentile branches were broken in, or grafted in rather as part of the same tree. And yeah, it started with Israel, but we're all now the same tree, one in Jesus Christ. We are all Israel. We are all children of the promise. How? By faith. He says that himself very clearly in Galatians chapter 3. I know this is a little thick, but this is all over the place right now, so you guys need to be clear. Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's not male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he goes on, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Guess what? If you're Christ's, you're true Israel. If you've repented and believed Jesus Christ as a Gentile, you're grafted into the tree. It's all one tree. It's all one people of God. It's fulfilled how? In the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does that mean for us grafted in Gentiles? Well, lots. That's where Paul lands the plane. Back in Romans 11, verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For you were cut 
from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul says something that they need to note. He says, take note of something. Take note of the kindness and the goodness and the severity of God. He says, severity towards those who have fallen, the unbelieving Jews, but kindness to you grafted in Gentiles. It sounds nice, but it's conditional. And what's the condition? God's word continues. Provided that you continue in his kindness, or else you too will be cut off like Israel. How do you continue in kindness? It's belief. If we look at verses 23 and 24 again, that's exactly what he says. Even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. This all centers on belief. Israel, if they stop with the unbelief and they turn to Christ, guess what? They will be grafted in again. God grafted you in. Can't he graft them in again? Now picture the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. So we have the tree. We have the unbelieving Jews that rejected Jesus. They've been snapped off. They're on the ground. Is God totally done with them? No, he's not totally done with them. In his mercy and his grace, he's going to still pick some. He's still going to have a remnant, even from those branches that are on the ground. He's going to pick them up. And what's he going to do? He's going to graft them back into the tree of the people of God again. That's his mercy. The tree, putting it all together. The tree, the people of God, built on Israel, the patriarchs and the law, the roots, right? Remember verse 18, we, we Gentiles are supported by the roots. The New, New Testament is built on the Old Testament. Israel, the original people of God, picture them as an olive tree. And again, some of those branches broken off and they're on the ground. God turns to the Gentiles and offers them the way of salvation, great, Gentiles, we graft you off from the wild olive shoot, put you in the tree. But he's not done with the branches that are on the ground. He's still going to show mercy to some of them. He's, he's going to pick some of them up. And he's going to clean them off. And he's going to prep them. And he's going to graft them again into the people of God. He will take some. He will take his remnant from Israel. Pick them off the ground and graft them into the tree once again. So Paul says, remember. Remember the severity of God. Because he's not going to save everybody. He did break the branches off the tree, and there are some that are still going to go to judgment because they have rejected God. But remember, Paul says, Gentiles grafted in, remember the kindness. Remember you were grafted into the tree. God can and will grant some of those branches that were broken off into the tree again. He shows you kindness in the way he grafted you in. And he will show some of them kindness once again. But remember both. This is not second chance theology. This is the purpose and the plan of the Almighty God. And so what? So what are we there for to do? Paul says, remain in the kindness of God. He says, stay faithful. Or to use a biblical word, persevere in the faith. In fact, perseverance is a characteristic of someone who is truly in the people of God. We talk about what is the nature of the people of God. Well, one of them is going to be perseverance. You are going to persevere in the faith. So I'll say it this way. God's people will persevere in the faith. God's people will persevere in the faith. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints 
And although we have a responsibility to persevere, guess what? We actually know that it is God who is the one who is holding us fast and giving us the energy and the strength and the spirit to persevere. Pastor Ed Moore yesterday at the conference gave a great example. Parents of little kids, you can, you can certainly relate to this. We just had one took a tumble a moment ago, right? You, you, you grab onto their hand and you walk them through maybe a snowy parking lot with lots of ice or whatever else or slippery mud or something, and they're holding on to your hand, right? If they slip and their feet goes out from under them, is it their grip on you that is going to keep them upright? Absolutely not. But they're holding on to your hand. What is it? It's going to be your grip on them that's going to keep them from falling. That's what it's like with perseverance of the saints. Yes, we work. Yes, we strive. Yes, we persevere. Yes, if we could have a divine hand that we were holding onto and grabbing onto God with all of our might, it's still not us that's going to keep us upright. It's going to be His grip on us, His children. Philippians 1.6 reminds us that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But we're not there yet. We're not home yet. And so we work like it's all up to us, but we pray like it's all up to God. And both are required in our effort, our effort, and God's sustaining grace. But what Paul is urging us to do in Romans 11 is that we need to stay faithful. God's people will persevere in the faith until the final day. Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this. They whom God has accepted in his beloved in Christ effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. This is the doctrine of perseverance in the faith. This is why we have questions like, can I lose my salvation? If you could lose your salvation, you would. You're not the one who saved yourself. You're not the one who grafted you into the tree. God's the one that's holding on to you. This is where the doctrine of election then becomes a warm blanket on a cold, rainy day. If you are elect, you are God's people, you have been grafted into the tree, he will cause you to persevere until the end. And we praise God for that. Because if it were up to me, I would have blown it already for sure. We, nonetheless, have a responsibility to remain faithful and diligent. We see warnings in the New Testament, especially in Hebrews. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Did you see the if there? There's another if verse in Colossians. And if those of you who were at the seminar yesterday when Pastor Ed Moore was quoting all this, I had these verses too before he did. I just want to make that clear. Colossians 1. Verse 21, and you who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which, is, which is, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. If indeed you persevere. 
God is holding us fast. God will cause us to be held fast. God's grip will not slip on us. But yes, we need to persevere. We need to continue in God's kindness, as Paul says. We need to continue in our belief. Paul makes it clear. Take note of both the kindness of God because he grafted you in, but also take note of the severity of God. Stay faithful, for your faithfulness proves your identity as the people of God. We need both of these attributes in balance. So often we want to like go to one side or the other side. The, the Bible, if you look at it and if you read it, that's why I love preaching expositionally, it's always going to force us into this balance. God is gracious and merciful. God is also severe and just, and he has wrath. We need to balance both of those things. Dr. Schreiner said it this way, the kindness of God cannot truly be appreciated as a gift of his grace unless the severity of God is contemplated as the just penalty for forsaking him. We need both, church. And once again, church, look at the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. For if those branches who were cut off as part of Israel would call upon the name of Jesus for salvation, they would surely be grafted in again. This is all the mysterious but merciful plan of God. And so our big idea this morning is this. God has a plan to bring all of his people to himself. God has a plan to bring all of his people to himself. Maybe you have a friend or family member who's not yet in Christ. Be encouraged, right? We want the immediate results, right? We're the microwave generation. We're the Taco Bell. Give it to me in 30 seconds or less, right? We, we want things now. God plays the long game. Be encouraged. God has a plan to bring all of his people to himself. But remember, we need to be faithful. We need to persevere. What do God's people look like, therefore? God's people will persevere in the faith. God's people are also a humble people. We know that we became his people not by our work. We became God's people because God worked and grafted us in. We also know that the gospel is not about us. And let us be warned with Israel and keep ourselves from making it all about ourselves. And God's people rejoice in God's global plan of salvation. Here's one. Do you have any Jewish friends? If you have Jewish friends, this is not mine. This is Piper's. I can't take credit for it. But if you have Jewish friends, make them jealous. Make them jealous. I love the Torah. I love your Old Testament. I, I love the sovereignty of Yahweh. I love all of these things. I love God's law. And I love God's Messiah. And I, I got to admit, I was listening to a sermon where he did, where he's talking about that. And I'm like, he's not really buying it there, Piper. I don't think that really works. But then he told story after story after story of testimony of Jewish person. And they said, that's exactly how I got saved. I saw what the Gentiles had and I wanted it. I would say make your Jewish friends jealous. Delight in their Messiah. Make your unbelieving Gentile friends jealous. Delight in Jesus the Messiah so that people see you and they want what you have. Church, let's keep our biblical heads screwed on straight. Don't be lured away by the false prophets announcing Jesus' immediate return because of the events in Israel. Remember, what the word says is that we are all Israel 
through faith in Jesus Christ. We are all part of the tree through faith in Jesus Christ. Be diligent in the faith, not only our personal faith, but the global plan of God to save his people and bring him to himself because God indeed does have a plan to bring all of his people to himself. Father, this is a difficult word for us this morning, but we are so thankful in your grace that we are in this chapter, in the midst of world events where all of the national spotlight is on Israel. Lord, help us, protect us from false teaching. Focus us on the task at hand, because even in the midst of this, Lord, it is not about us making an escape from this world by any means. It is about you continuing to do your redemptive work in bringing your people to yourself and using all events. You waste nothing, God. Even these events in the Middle East, don't waste this, Lord. We encourage you, Father, fulfill all of your purposes. Please bring your people to yourself. And may we be diligent to remain faithful in the, in the faith and make others jealous by what we have in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.